Over the past two years, I have read 2 Samuel 7 in three different sermons. From Genesis 4 to Micah 5 to Luke 20. We keep finding ourselves at this passage, not just because I like teaching about the kingdom of God, although that's true, but because the scriptures continually to teach us and to point us to God's kingdom and what he's doing in his creation. And here in 2 Samuel 7, we see two things at their climax, at their pinnacle of Old Testament theology, God's kingdom and God's covenant. From beginning to end the Old Testament, these themes are being drawn through the narrative. And we see the convergence of God's kingdom in, first, or in 2 Samuel 6. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord has been brought to Jerusalem. It is a visible sign of God's presence. Where it goes, God goes also. And David has brought it to Jerusalem, showing that David's monarchy, his kingdom, is nothing without the presence of God. We also see from Genesis all the way to 2 Samuel 7, the covenant of grace continuing to grow. Ever since Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden as, as king priests, as priestly kings in the garden who rebelled against God, God promised through his covenant that he would bless his people. And from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses and now to David, we see how God has progressively revealed his plan of redemption and it has come together at 2 Samuel 7. This is one story of how God is redeeming His people to Himself. The covenant is a means to an end, and that end is for God's people to enjoy and have communion and fellowship with God Himself. This is the goal. This is why God established the covenant to bring about His redemptive purposes for His people that they may dwell with Him and He with them and that they might be a light to the nations so that the nations will come and worship the God that has created them. Imagine this. Imagine if we could step into our Bibles. So this, this won't take a lot of imagination. As our building's being built... Soon, hopefully sooner than later, we will get walls. They'll be bare, and then we'll start to put the, the roof on. And if we would walk through that building, we could see how the structure is held together. But if we could step into our Bibles, the structure that we would see that holds together the entire narrative is God's covenant of grace. God has come to his people and made himself known. He has revealed to them what he expects of them as his covenant people. And he has promised to be faithful to them. To guide them and to lead them. This is the narrative. This is the climax that we reach. And what's so great is we get to verse 1 of chapter 7 and we see what God is doing. He is being faithful to his covenant promises. Back in Exodus and Deuteronomy, what did God promise His people would happen when they entered the land? That He would give them rest from their enemies. In verse 1, when the king, David, lived in his house of the, 
in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. God is faithful to his covenant promises. And what I want us to see this morning is three things from this text. That God originates, God orchestrates, and God overwhelms David with his covenant promises. God originates, orchestrates, and overwhelms David with his covenant promises. So God originates. And this is very important for us to hear. We don't determine our worship of God. We don't determine what we believe about God. We don't even determine by what basis we even come to God. This is something that God always does for us. We do not make up the rules. God sets the standards of what his people should believe. God sets the standards on what his people should do to follow him. God sets the standards even how we worship him. I don't know if you know this, but every aspect of our bulletin and our worship is taken directly from Scripture. We see the people of God doing everything we do in our bulletin prescribed to us or deduced from Scripture. God is always the one that comes to us and provides us a way of being faithful to him. But yet we see David here just in the first few verses. And what we might think he's doing is good and well. He has good intentions, right? And as long as you have good intentions, nothing bad can happen. And he says, let us make a house for the Lord. For I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to him, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But then we read on. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. It's like a divine hand raise. Um, Excuse me. Have you not read Exodus? Did you not see the detail that I gave Moses and Aaron and the Levites of how they were supposed to build my temple? Of how they were supposed to build the ark and the altar and the table and the lampstands and the curtains? And even the fine detail of the high priest's clothing. Do you not think I know what I'm doing? Do you not think I have this under control? And the narrator wants us to see this because once in chapter 2 and twice in chapter 5, David goes to inquire from the Lord what he will do, and the Lord responds. But here in chapter 7, David's like, I got this. I can set up what I think should be done. And even with good intentions, the Lord comes that very night through a prophet and says, Thus says the Lord, if I wanted it done, I would have told you I wanted it done. How does this sit with you? How many times have we desired to do what's pleasing to the Lord without asking the Lord, is this pleasing to you? And now I'm not suggesting that we wait for a prophet to come and tell us, thus says the Lord, this is what school you should go to. It's not Old Miss, but this is the school that you should go to. 
The Lord doesn't tell us who we should marry or what house we should buy. But the Lord has given us his revealed will for our lives. He has put people around us that we can speak to and say, you know, I'm really thinking about doing this. What do you think? Give me biblical wisdom on how to think about this. I'm thinking about buying this this property. How can I do that for the glory of God and for the good of his people? So we're Presbyterians. When we have ministers or when we have candidates who come and wanting to become ministers, ordained ministers, we ask of them to confirm to us, so I'm on the committee, of their calling to gospel ministry. And that doesn't mean that they just say, I believe I'm called to gospel ministry. They have to show us six references of people who can confirm their calling. Six people that will tell them, we believe also that God is calling this man to an ordained office. God has given the people of God to help us see the will of God for our lives. How often do we actually use it? Do we even think about, man, maybe my intentions are good, but maybe I really should seek the Lord's guidance with this decision. We are not on an island by ourselves. We are not trying to figure out how to live on our own. Every heresy in the Christian church came from one person saying, I have something new and no one else knows. But when the people of God collectively live life together, seek God's will together, read God's word together, then we'll be aligned with the will that God has for our lives. God has provided us his word, and God has provided us his people we do not make this up as we go along. As much as awful as that might seem, we don't make this up. The Lord is blessing us. He is the originator of how we are to worship Him. And this is what David failed to do in these first verses. He sought to do his own will, other than the will of the Lord. So God originates His covenant promise, and God orchestrates his covenant promise with David. And this is what we see in verses 8 to 11. Now, when, when Bill read this, I had not heard it from the NIV. I read from the ESV. But did you hear all the personal pronouns? I count no less than 16 where God says, I took you from the pasture. I have been with you. I cut off your enemies. I will make you a great name. I appointed judges. I will give you rest. I will be. I will. I took. The Lord is the one that's in control of these covenant blessings. God gives David a recap of redemptive history. Hey, guess what? I brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. And then God gives David his own personal history. Oh yeah, when you were a shepherd and your own dad didn't even bring you before Samuel to see if one of his sons is going to be king. I hand-selected you, and I anointed and appointed you to be prince, to be the leader of my people. 
And because I've been faithful to my people in the past, and because I've been faithful to you in the past, God tells him about what he's going to do in the future. And because God has been faithful in the past, David can know he will be faithful in the future. And we should hear this, this theme, this recurrent theme of the covenant of grace. I will make your name great, uh, that like the name of the great ones of all the earth. This is the same promise that he gave Abraham in Genesis 12 too. God is building upon these covenant promises to prove, I am faithful. I have this under control. How many of you need to hear that this morning? That God is in control. That He is is orchestrating your redemption in Christ for your own good. Even when there's times when you think it's out of control, God has been faithful in the past. And He will continue to be faithful in the future. The narrator wants us to see this. He wants us to see that God has continually been faithful throughout all of Israel's history. God is orchestrating all good things for His covenant people. As I read this passage this week, I was just overwhelmed with the love of God. That each and every one of us, He is orchestrating this plan of redemption in Christ and it will come true because He's faithful and because He loves us. So God originates His covenant promises, God orchestrates His covenant promises, and God overwhelms David with His covenant promises. And now we get to verses 10 to 17. And as I I was thinking about this passage, there's one thing that kept popping into my head. One of these things is not like the other. Because here, as we began the passage, David wants, wants to do something really nice for God. I want to build a temple for you. I live in this really nice house, and you live in that tent that has been moving around a lot. It's kind of used and outdated. And so I want to build you this nice house. And what do we see God? How do we see God respond? You will not build me a house. Your son will build build me a house. And you know what I'm going to build for him? A kingdom that will last forever. This is the the gift exchange that you go to where you spent $5 on a gift and the person that you're receiving a gift from spent $1,000. One of these things is not like the other. Oh, you're going to build me a house? That's really great. I'm going to build you a kingdom that lasts forever. Do you hear that overwhelming love and mercy and grace that God has for David? This is what God has done for David. He's not only said, I'm going to build you a house, but he says, you're going to have a son, and your son is going to become my son. Back in Exodus, all of Israel was called the son of God. But now God is choosing 
the king of Israel to be his anointed son. And Solomon was the answer to this promise. For David had Solomon. And Solomon built a temple for God. Solomon rested from his enemies. He didn't have to fight because the Lord had given him rest. In Solomon, the nations came to Israel because of his wisdom and stature, and they saw Yahweh and the people worshiping him. This promise was fulfilled in Solomon. And just imagine if you're Israel living in that day. Think, just think if you were there. This is the greatest king on earth. God has been faithful. This is it. This is great. And then what happens? Solomon was unfaithful to God's covenant. Do you know what happened right after Solomon died? The kingdom was split into two. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And just think about what the people of Israel felt. Whoa. God, what's going on? You said you're going to be faithful. Why aren't you you coming through? Because God's covenant always has the obligations for the people. And the king, the anointed one, was being covenant faithless. He was being faithless to God's covenant. And so each king after that was like the sequel to to your favorite movie. You really like that one movie, the movie about David. It was really great. And then you get this next sequel, and you're like, yeah, that that wasn't as great as the first one. And so what does the director do? Let's come up with a third one, and we'll totally redeem that last one. And the third one's even worse. And then the fourth one is even worse. This is what Israel was waiting for. We're we're waiting for this king. Surely this next king is going to be better than the last one. Oh, man, this one's not very good either. The people had rejected Yahweh, their covenant God. The king had rejected the Holy One of Israel. Second Samuel, all the way to the book of Matthew. This is a thousand years of the people waiting. A thousand years after King David, the people of Israel are waiting for the anointed one of Israel to come and rule over them forever. This is why we're in a season of expectation. Because God has promised to fulfill his covenant to David. And the people have been waiting. The people have been waiting for the one that's going to be even greater than David. And what this story reveals to us is that David is not Jesus. Solomon is not Jesus. But they prepared us for the one to come. Because Jesus is greater than David ever could have been. Jesus is greater than Solomon. Where the Lord does not have to discipline him because Jesus followed the covenant perfectly. He was faithful. 
It is in Jesus that David's throne was established. This is how Paul starts Romans 1 through 6. It is in Jesus that God's people ultimately find their Sabbath rest from their enemies because death has been defeated at the cross. It is in our union with Christ that God's covenantal love is promised, I will never leave you because I sent my son for you. Jesus completes the Old Testament narrative. He fulfills the Old Testament promise. Jesus is the anointed one. At his baptism, the Holy Spirit came upon him and anointed him. And Jesus said, in you I am well pleased. And Jesus' kingdom has been established forever. Peter says in 2 Peter, For in this way there will be, rich, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you know why John says, So God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life? Do you know why that's true? Why we have eternal life? Because Jesus' kingdom is eternal. It will never end. Our eternal life is tied to Christ's reign on his kingdom, and it's been established forever. God is the originator of our redemption in Christ. In the Advent season, we get to celebrate. Guess what? We didn't originate our salvation. God didn't wait for us to get our stuff together. He came in the fullness of time. And God came to us. Because at the heart of the covenant, isn't that we just get somewhere. The heart of the covenant is that we get God himself. And he came to us in the form of a baby. God is the orchestrator of our redemption in Christ. This is why we get to celebrate our assurance of salvation. Our salvation is not based upon how strong our faith is, how good I feel about God's love today. Our assurance of salvation is based upon Christ's resurrection and Him sitting on the throne in the presence of the Holy God. And God has overwhelmed us in Christ giving us far more than we ever could have imagined. We receive something we didn't deserve. Think about that. We would have taken $5 from Jesus, and he gave us 1000 Do you believe in this story? Do you believe in God's covenant promises are for you and Christ. God is faithful. If you believe in this story, Jesus is your king, and you can celebrate because your salvation is sure. He is the originator, the orchestrator, and he has overwhelmed us this Christmas because Christ, the Emmanuel, has come to us. And that's where I get this title this title is a super cheesy love slogan I found on the internet. Forever, no matter what, I promise, because of Jesus. 
not because anything that we have done. Forever, no matter what, I promise, because Jesus, he came when we didn't deserve it, because he came to us when we were in our sin. He came to us when we didn't expect it. Because typically we forget about how God is working. And he's coming again. And he will consummate his kingdom. And he will never leave us. We got God when Jesus came to us. Amen.